Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Parag Khanna is a leading global strategy advisor, world traveller and best-selling author. What that really means is he's a geography geek and a deep thinker about the future. I'm going to be asking Parag more about that shortly. Dr. Parag Khanna holds a PhD in international relations from the London School of Economics, a bachelor's and master's degree from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, the list of fellowships that he has been awarded is lengthy, including the Singapore Institute of International Affairs, the LSE, the European Council on Foreign Relations, the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi, to name just a few. His advisory roles are lengthy also, from governments around the world to big businesses and many others. Born in India, Parag grew up in the United Arab Emirates, New York and Germany and has then travelled extensively since. He has been named one of Esquire's 75 most influential people in the 21st century and featured in Wired's magazine's Smart List. So Parag, I'm delighted to welcome you to our podcast today. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. That's good to have you. My first question for us today, you predict the future, but how have these predictions changed over time and what does that tell us? Well, to be more precise, I make scenarios, and that's probably the right business to be in right now, given all the uncertainty in the world, whereas making predictions is a very dangerous proposition in a volatile and uncertain world, such as the one we live in right now or the conditions of today. So making scenarios is all about the multiple possible futures. So in this book, I posit four different scenarios. One is called barbarians at the gate, you know, a world of mass and uncontrolled migration in which there's low sustainability, but high migration. Another scenario is called the new middle ages in which there's regional fragmentation of the world and limited migration. And we become more like hunter gatherers again. Another is called regional fortresses in which the major regional centers of the world, like North America, Europe, and East Asia, try to wall themselves off and they hoard the key technologies of sustainability to themselves and limit north-south migration. And the final scenario is called Northern Lights, in which you have a more fluid recirculation of the world population and a sharing of technology across geographies to create more sustainable communities. And and the, the secret to doing scenarios is that all of them actually need to be plausible. It needs to be perfectly plausible that all of them could come true. And in fact, all of them are coming true at the same time to different degrees in different parts of the world. Otherwise, you would just rule out an impossible scenario. So in fact, you know, the future becomes not one prediction or the other. This future becomes an amalgamation of the elements of all of those four stories. So in the, in the book, I go through all four of them and apply them to the whole world and kind of tell those potential future stories. And you just referred to your new book there, Move, which uh, is really that sort of mega trend shaping humanity over the next sort of coming decades. Parag, how did you come to write this book? Like, where is it sort of based in? What's your journey so far to get to it? Oh, that's a, that's a question I love to answer because there's no subject 
that I've ever loved more than geography. And this is not my first book of geography. In some way, all of my books are about geography. But I'll first maybe tell you how I fell in love with geography. And the answer is travel. So if geography is the subject I love the most, then travel is what I love to do the most. And uh, I think my, my mother will tell you I was almost born on a plane. Uh, so I've been traveling my entire life. And a seminal moment for me was when the Berlin Wall fell. We were actually living in America at the time, but we flew to Berlin and I got to be there you know, very shortly after it happened. So that was about 32 years ago. A very special moment kind of shaped everything I've done since. And I studied geography, studied geopolitics, have traveled you know, very extensively all over the world. In the study of geography, there's multiple layers. So one of the arguments I make in this book is there isn't one geography. There's natural geography. Then there's political geography, which is borders that you know, divide us and the lines on the map on, in most of the maps that hang in our classrooms and offices. Then there's functional geography, which is the geography of infrastructure and supply chains and industry. And I devoted the book, one of the books before this called Connectography, entirely to that issue of functional geography and its impact on geopolitics and globalization. But then most of all, this is a book about the fourth layer of geography, which is human geography. It's us. It is the distribution of the 8 billion people in the world. Where are we and why are we there? And who are we in many ways? So human geography is a lot more than migration. Migration is just one subset of human geography. It's a good lens into understanding many sociological issues and, and the rest of it. But fundamentally, human geography is also about evolution. It's ethnography, it's anthropology, it's many different things rolled together. It's even genetics in some ways. So I wanted to kind of take a futuristic look at our human geography. And I set out to just answer this one seemingly simple question, where will we live in 2050? Where will you live in 2030, 2040, and 2050, your children, our children? How will, if there are 9 billion people alive at that time, I think in truth, it'll be a little bit less than 9 billion people, but where will they be? And how did they get from where they are right now, which we know very, very precisely on today's maps, exactly where every human being in the world is. Why did they go somewhere else? Because they will surely be going somewhere else. And that's kind of the point of departure of the book is to kind of do the largest scale mental exercise in the entire resettlement of the human population over the next 30 years and to look at scenarios for how it might play out and why. But again, the story of how we get to where we are going. Not, not asking the simple questions there, but <laughs> for the big ones. Only, only the really small and simple questions for me. <laughs> <laughs> Any excuse to sit and ponder the world. I wanted to pick up, I mean, you obviously touched on those megatrends and how you see some of those scenarios changing or rolling out in terms of where we move to and, and how we might behave in that. I'd love to dig into that a bit more. I mean, clearly when you were painting it earlier, for me, there was a kind of like Northern Lights, come on, we've got to get that fluid and the sharing and the equality. Maybe I'm completely living in cookie land, but how does your research and the trends that you're seeing, how can we influence that? Or how can this insight help us make better decisions so that we might have a potentially happier, lovelier place to live in 2050? I think that's exactly the right question. So, you know, scenario planning is about, it's a visioning exercise. You choose the scenario that you want to pursue, you know, and you reverse engineer the game plan, the action plan to get 
from where we are now to where we should be. So if I believe that this future model of civilization, I call it civilization 3.0, meaning we are mobile and we are sustainable. If civilization 1.0 was when we were agricultural and nomadic, civilization 2.0 was industrial and sedentary, and civilization 3.0 is mobile and circular, meaning, of course, sustainable economy, sustainable infrastructures, and, and sustainable habitats. So how do we get there? Well, the first thing is, of course, you have other layers of geography influencing and interfering. So natural geography is pushing us to move because we have climate change accelerating and significant cascading negative effects from climate change. We have desertification, rising sea levels, droughts, um, you know, natural disasters of all kinds, flooding, uh, melting glaciers, and so on and so on and so on. So the climate is the original driver of human migration over the last 100,000 years. It's been relatively stable for 10 to 12,000 years, but it's, of course, changing again. So you have the natural geography pushing the human geography to move, and you have the physical, the infrastructural geography, remember the functional geography I mentioned earlier, which is connectivity, which is pipelines and railways and highways and air, airports and you know, internet cables, allowing us to be more mobile. But you have the fourth layer of geography, the political geography interfering. You have borders, right? So even though we have the technology that would enable us to live in more self-sufficient habitats, in other words, to have people live in, in, in physical communities where you have rainwater collection and, and gray water recycling, where you have hydroponic agriculture, where you have solar and wind power, and so on and so forth. That doesn't mean that we can physically survive in certain places that are getting too hot, you know, for example. So all of the technology that we are capable of deploying, all of the mobility that we are capable of enabling for the 8 billion people in the world, we can't fully utilize because political geography blocks it, which is to say sovereignty, right? And so as a political scientist, it's something I've always wrestled with. There, there's another dimension to everything I've ever written, which is wrestling with the idea of sovereignty. You know, what model of civilizational organization comes next? Since, you know, we've had sovereignty as a legally defining principle for the relations among polities and states since the 17th century, but really given that the world was very hierarchical and colonial and imperial, through the 20th century, it's only in the last decades, if you will, that we really have a world where we should can legitimately think of the world divided into these 200 sovereign nation states. And so we have these 200 sovereign nation states with their borders at, that restrict mobility at precisely the time that humans need to be the most mobile. And so reconciling that and answering those concrete questions is how you get to that happier vision. I think the technology piece is getting there. We're doing everything from geoengineering to, you know, capturing, you know, water from the atmosphere and producing, you know, again, you're doing underground hydroponic farming. You know, we're doing what we can on the technology side, but the politics has to be resolved. And part of that, that's where we come to migration as an operational vehicle for the resettlement of the world. And what we're seeing is that, or what I see from direct observation from traveling all over the world is that there is actually, we're approaching a tipping point in two ways. The first is that we're realizing that the world population is actually finite. It's not infinite. We're not going to have a Malthusian crisis. The world population is not going to reach 15 billion people. It will barely, if at all, reach 9 billion people within the next decade and a half. 
many parts of the world are experiencing depopulation and significant emigration and have very low fertility and have high dependency ratios and need migration and are desperate for it. And then there are a lot of pragmatic countries that are operating on that already. The world is not run by populist, inward-looking, xenophobic governments at all. If you look at places like Canada, they are you know, an ideal type, but also somewhat representative of what's happening in quite a few countries where they're saying, we need more migrants, right? Canada, for example, is increasing its population at more than 1% per year, which translates into about 400,000 net new migrants, which is not that much less than the United States, even though Canada has you know, one-tenth the population of the US. You see immigration driving population stability in Germany. You see Japan having 3 million foreigners. There have never been 3 million non-Japanese people living on the islands of Japan, never in 7,000 years. And so even though we think of Japan as a very insular society, it turns out that they are open to migrants. So we're seeing this pragmatism actually And if you look at Brexit, it's so interesting because it is easier to migrate to the UK today than it was before Brexit. And of course, you know, various dimensions of the migration question were a big factor in Brexit. But of course, given the labor shortages across the economy, NHS and so forth in the UK, the Johnson government has turned a full 180 and has said people before passports. And now, you know, it's uh, the criteria are far reduced to, to migrate to the UK. So I actually think that given the stagnation of our species in terms of fertility and the labor shortages and the demographic imbalances, I think country by country will have this realization that we actually need to allow the world population to circulate more. And that's, that would happen purely on the basis of demographics, even without the recognition that climate change is an existential threat to the very survivability of billions of people. Wow, I didn't know all that. <laughs> there you go. Background. That's why I do what I do. <laughs> yeah, I've just had complete kind of, you know, epiphany here. And if you, I mean, clearly from how you describe it, there's at a political level and the kind of governance level, there's lots of decisions that need to be made. And as you say, finding a way to have fluidity across borders. Our podcast is all about business fights poverty. So if you're sat in business, is there something from your research, is there some recommendations or actions that you think that they should taking or just is it about awareness at this rate? Plenty. Well, so, okay, the number one way in which business fights poverty internationally is through foreign investment, right? Because trade is a result of investment. Trade doesn't just happen. A poor country doesn't start magically producing automobiles and dishwashers and mobile phones, right? It requires foreign investment. So the number one thing that businesses can do is to continue to expand abroad. Now, that raises some very challenging issues, which we may or may not go into more depth about, which is, you know, what about investing in countries where there's, you know, human rights violations? What about the plight of the Uyghurs in Western China and and all of the other places where there's, you know, forced labor and so forth? And, you know, what about places where labor rights are not well protected, like, you know, Bangladesh and many, many other places? So that there's, there's many very significant issues and nuances there. But the fact is that historically, if you are a private actor, not a development agency, not you know the United Nations. You know if you invest somewhere, if you create jobs somewhere, you know do remember that you are in fact improving materially a person's life, despite all of the ethical, political, geopolitical dynamics that may surround your presence in that country. You know you have made a, a difference, and you see this industry after industry. There's not a single industry that that doesn't apply to. It's hospitality when uh you know when a company builds a hotel. 
Obviously, it's the electronics industry, it's the garment industry, and so on and so forth. So this is not something that, quite frankly, is subject to debate. This is a fact. And I believe that leaders should go into the boardroom every day looking at the world, looking at the map, and saying, you know, where is it that we need to be? Where are the people, right? Where can we make things? Where can we sell things if that's what we do? And let's think about how we can be there and be there sustainably, of course, and do good there. Because at the end of the day, the world population, especially if you're a Western company, the market is elsewhere. The demographics are elsewhere, right? Particularly in Asia and, and, and you know, West Asia, Africa, and so forth. So you do need to continue to be global and have a confidence that in many ways, despite the obstacles, you're on balance doing the right thing. That's number one. The second is transferring technology, right? Not just investing somewhere, but you know, one of the mottos of this book is we need to move people to resources and move technologies to people, right? And of course, where does the lion's share of the world's innovation come from, uh, even if it's publicly funded? It comes from the private sector. So if you are a business with a certain technology, can you bring the cost of that technology down? Can you transfer it to places where it's going to help people have more productive livelihoods? And if it does, that's good because that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're going to allow people to have more productive economic lives, to earn more money, to get better education, to have better health care, all of those things. So whether or not you're investing is one thing, but transferring technology and being part of technology transfer is another and the third is, of course, being a significant advocate for the mobility of people. You have to understand that mobility itself is a huge part of our economy. I think we've all learned that in the last year and a half as the world stood still, right? We're accustomed to being in a world where more than 1 billion people cross borders every single year, particularly in recent years. And that number, actually, by December 2019, or we had the data in January of 2020, ironically, precisely the month that COVID broke out. That 2019, in 2019, 1.5 billion people crossed borders, right? And that was a record. And, you know, we want to get back to that world, not just because tourism is good and business travel is good. You know, a lot of aspects of travel are never, you know, like business travelers, never going to come back to what it was. But thinking about the mere fact that we, human civilization is like a bicycle. We are all pedaling that bicycle. And when we stop pedaling, when we stop moving, that bicycle falls over, right? The circulation of people is itself a huge part of what holds our economy up. Now, of course, we don't want to just, again, travel for the sake of it, emit greenhouse gas, gases from our airplanes and cars for the sake of a joyride, right? But that's part of the investment we're making that many companies are making today is in making mobility itself more sustainable. But replenishing the populations of depopulating countries is a big economic stimulus. Quite frankly, and again, this is, I also don't think, subject to debate, you know, a lot of economic research shows that the more borders you bring down to the movement of people, the more you expand the global economy merely by, fact, by the fact of doing that, um, even if you don't do anything else. So, you know, being the pragmatic advocates as business for what is the correct policy and therefore fighting against kind of this temporary and, and you know, sort of empirically unfounded you know, xenophobia and populism and protectionism is a very, very important role for business to play. I'm still dumbfounded about how many people move borders each year. One billion yeah. or more than one billion pre-COVID numbers. That's huge. Pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, more than a tenth of the entire global population. It's just huge. Parag, we, I care deeply about futures a bit like you, but I care because I'm a bit nosy. <laughs> and uh, I'm curious. So beside your book tour, 
what do you see on your horizon? Perhaps, you know, you want to make sure that it's on other people's or sort of trends that you're seeing coming down the pike that are really important to you going forward beyond the book at the moment. Oh, well, I mean, I work, so my, my company actually has a data science product called Climate Alpha. And in a way, it is an attempt to contribute to the overall mission of the book that I've articulated in terms of wanting to have an orderly and stable and sustainable you know, resettlement and recirculation of people to the habitats that are most livable, you know, for the sake of humanity. And now that's a, that's a story that's been written now that I've written sort of from a geopolitical and a diplomatic and a humanitarian and economic standpoint and made the argument and done the analysis. But I want to back it with data science. And I want to look, you know, bring together, and this is what we have done already, is bring together climate models, looking at economic data, looking at policies, looking at infrastructure investment, and start to bring those data sets together into forecasts and, of course, policy recommendations around how countries can most efficiently and sustainably adapt themselves to absorb larger populations, especially those countries that are livable, right, especially in the northern hemisphere. And I want to take that and really go country by country by country and work with them on this issue. Now, I mean, this is something that I've already been doing for the last 15 years, but not necessarily with the sort of climate emergency focus, more because it should be part of the master planning of a country to think about who its future residents are. What are they going to do? How are they going to live? How are they going to work? Um, those are the questions that, that we've been working on you know, with governments for many years. And now I believe that given that climate consciousness has become so acute, fortunately, if not too late, just about everywhere, I think that that's going to be a new layer added to, to the work that we've been doing. Well, for anybody who's listening to the podcast, I'll make sure I put a link to that work that you're working on, the Climate Alpha product, and of course, to the book Move Too. My final question for us today, Prague, well, we care a lot about you as a person, as I mentioned just now. And you, I mean, you, your CV includes kind of TED Talks and time spent with the World Economic Forum and Brookings and advisor to the US Special Operations Forces and the list goes on and on and on. Now, clearly you didn't sort of just emerge and were superhuman able to do all that. Could you share a bit about the journey that you went on and perhaps your advice to others who would also like to be influential, useful contributors? What would be your advice to someone listening to this podcast today? Sure. Well, I'm I'm a believer in uh, you know the power of youth. I like to think I'm still somewhat young enough to be able to speak credibly to the next generation, even though their circumstances are so different from how I might have you know grown up. But I guess I've covered travel, how important that is for given the choice between you know kind of a sedentary role versus one that required going out and researching and you know being boots on the ground and learning language. I've always chosen that latter path kind of just relentlessly by nature, and it hasn't let me down. I'm still alive today, and I've been to 150 countries, many of them you know, quite nasty, but it's been the most incredible education. The other is you know, kind of going back to what sort of career paths people choose. I actually chose to write my PhD thesis on, on precisely what you as an organization do, not only how business fights poverty, but really the role of business as a critical stakeholder in global governance itself. And the argument I made is that legitimacy, the nature of legitimacy is shifting from 
well, governments are the sole final arbiters, you know, and, and, and sort of, you know, hold, carry legitimacy simply because they are, and they are charged constitutionally, you know, with public well-being, to saying, actually, it's all about outputs, who's doing the most, right? You know, whether you're a company or you're a civil society organization or a government, legitimacy is about the diplomacy of the deed in many ways. So I've been thoroughly convinced of that, you know, sort of reality uh, intellectually and in a way as, as a mission statement for a good long time, probably, you know, 15 plus years or 20 years, actually, in terms of policy work on this issue and academic work. And there's never, it's never been more obvious. I feel now I feel old because I think I'm saying something that is actually really obvious to young people, but was definitely not obvious and not legally codified at the time as, as self-evidently as it is today. So I recommend to young people to go out and seize an opportunity to, to do something good. And it doesn't matter whether it is, you know, with uh, a civil society group or, or business, you know, being an, an entrepreneur inside a company or uh, with a government, you know, organization to just to go out there and do things. When I was doing academic work, you know, it was like, I've read every single World Bank report about how to fight poverty that's ever been published since the 1950s. <laughs> and I realized, oh, wow, we've kind of said all this before, right? So this is a time for activism. And activism is not some kind of um, you know, pejorative statement anymore. In fact, one of the things I say in this book is that activism is a career today in ways that it really hasn't been in previous generations. It was, if anything, you know, a short-lived phase of people's lives in the 60s, let's say. But now I think it's like a permanent condition. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think that's actually a really good thing. Now, of course, we have to differentiate among causes and the means used to pursue certain ends. But if we take the idea seriously that, you know, again, thinking back to scenario planning, that there are some pretty serious existential crises that we're in right now, now is not the time just for idle kind of, you know, dawdling. And, and it's not a time for slacktivism. Let me give one last humorous piece of advice, which is don't spend too much time on Twitter, right? <laughs> Twitter is not the place to get things done. You know, going out in, in the real world is. Well, on that advice, no dawdling. Time for activism. We're in it. Farag Khanna, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your wisdom with us today. Such a pleasure to join you. Thank you. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 